0: 364 on the P bibles probably also up on the screen but it's nice to see it in front of you I think so 1 Kings chapter 22 beginning in verse 1 for three years there was no war between Aram and Israel but in the third year Jehoshaphat king of Judah went down to see the king of Israel The king of Israel had said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us? And yet we are doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram. So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First, seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord. But I hate him, because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imla. The king should not say such a thing, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imla, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Canaan, had made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack, Ramoth-Gilead, and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, the other prophets, without exception, are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead or not? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord?
1: Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing round him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Canaanah, went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the spirit from the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you? he asked. Micaiah replied, You will find out on the day you go to hide in an inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, Take Micaiah and send him back to Amon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash the king's son, and say, This is what the king says, put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, mark my words, all you people. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone, small or great, except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him. But when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commander saw that he was not the king of Israel and stopped pursuing him. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armour. The king told his chariot driver, Wheel around and get me out of the fighting, I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of his chariot, and that evening he died. As the sun was setting, a cry spread through through the army, every man to his town, every man to his land. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria, where the prostitutes bathed, and the dogs licked up his blood, as the word of the Lord had declared.
2: Thank you, Liz. Thanks, Monica. And good evening, friends. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Jack, and it is wonderful to be with you as we come to the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to hear your Word, that you would open our minds to understand it. Where it is puzzling, where we feel in the dark, we pray that your Spirit would give us light. Where it is hard, where it challenges us, we pray that you would humble us. To be ready to receive a word that may, may challenge us and put us, push us beyond what we already think. We pray that you would help our hearts to be willing to yield to you, to obey you, to grow to know you more and more deeply. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Monica's already helped us see, you may be wondering what happened to our Summer Psalms series. I came here tonight for something a little more contained, a little light, perhaps What that's what we were expecting. Why this one-off sermon on a huge slab of historical narrative? Well, when Simon asked me to help out with some preaching during the summer, I was keen to serve and very glad to be here, but to make it a little more manageable for me and the rest of my workload, my one request was that one of these talks might be on a passage that I've been working at in my study. So for those of you who may not be aware, I'm in here in Cambridge doing a doctorate in Old Testament studies, And what I'm studying is the issue of deceiving and lying in the books of 1 and 2 Kings. And this passage before us tonight is a significant one. It is a fascinating tale of twists and turns, of secrets and lies and deceptions. And I thought it would be helpful for us to consider this together tonight because it is the kind of chapter that you might come across in your devotions one morning, find a little puzzling, maybe just plain confusing, if not downright unsettling, and it's easier to then close the Bible and say, all right, that's enough scripture for today, and shrug your shoulders, and next time make sure you turn back to the more familiar and comforting pages of the New Testament. And yet these unsettling pages of scripture are as much the word of God as anything else we have written down for us. And God has given us these words too, that we might continue to grow to know and trust our God. Often it's the chapters that we're most tempted to skip past that are the ones we most need to hear because they have something crucial to teach us about our God that we might at first not want to wrestle with, and yet we need to. What does this story have to teach people who follow Jesus, who claims not to be just the way and the life, but also the truth? That is what I hope for us to explore tonight. To begin with, we do need to back up a little bit. It's like we've just jumped out of a plane and parachuted into the middle of this big Old Testament book, so we need to stand up and get our bearings a little bit and see what's happening. Where are we? As we enter 1 Kings 22, the year is roughly 850 BC. About 100 years before this, the nation of Israel had been at its peak under great King Solomon, but now the nation is split in two. The northern kingdom of Israel has had this succession of evil kings one after another kings who have turned their back on God and led the people astray and the king who is now on the throne is king Ahab and if there's one thing you need to know about Ahab it is that he is literally the worst in chapter 16 when Ahab is introduced it tells us that Ahab the son of Omri did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those who were before him this is a king who led the people to worship idols, who told them to bow down to the false god Baal. And the Lord is furious. Again and again, God has spoken to Ahab through the prophets, especially the one of the most famous prophets, Elijah. God has warned Ahab to turn back again and again. And again and again, Ahab has refused. So the chapter we come to now is the final showdown between Ahab and God. Ahab has set himself up as God's enemy, And now we're going to see what God is going to do about it. For the nation as a whole, it is a time of geopolitical turmoil. Israel has been at war on and off with the nation of Aram to the north, also known as Syria. As we look at verse 1 of our chapter, it tells us there's been a ceasefire for the past three years, but conflict is brewing again because there is this Israelite city called Ramoth-Gilead. The Arameans had captured it, they lost the last war, so they were meant to give it back But the problem is the king of Aram has not kept his word. So Ahab's plan, the presenting issue here, Ahab wants to go and take the city back by force. Verse 3, he says, the king of Israel said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And yet we're doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram. That's what Ahab wants. He wants to take the city back. He wants to extend his kingdom, restore its honour, build up its grandeur by force if necessary. And necessary it seems to be. But Ahab does not think he can do it alone. So he reaches out to perhaps an unlikely ally, the southern kingdom of Judah, ruled at this stage by King Jehoshaphat. Verse 4, Ahab asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth-Gilead? Now, as you read the book of Kings more broadly, on the whole, Jehoshaphat's not a bad king. He mostly walks in the ways of God, but one of the things that Jehoshaphat is criticized for is for getting a little too friendly with the wicked king of the north. For whatever reason, Jehoshaphat decides he will team up with Ahab, his buddy. So verse 4, Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Jehoshaphat's going to bring his whole army to the party. He's like the poker player who pushes his whole stack of chips into the middle of the table. I am all in, he says seems like Jehoshaphat is pretty quick to throw Judah's Judah's lot in with Israel's to risk bringing the two countries close together. Will Ahab's evil come to infect the southern kingdom too? There's a lot at stake here because Jehoshaphat is flirting with disaster. To his credit, Jehoshaphat still has God firmly in the picture because he's not going to go in on Ahab's mission without first seeking God's blessing. So verse 5, Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First... Seek the counsel of the Lord. Let's ask God, does he actually want us to go on this mission? Does he approve of it? And Ahab is happy enough to oblige because, as it happens, he has plenty of prophets hanging around his court. He has about 400 of them ready to be called up whenever he has a question for God. Ahab asks his prophets, verse 6, "'Shall I go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain?' "'Go,' they answered, "'for the Lord will give it into the king's hand.'" That's about as positive an answer as you could hope for, isn't it? The Lord is going to give Ahab the victory. It's like Ahab has now cracked open his fortune cookie, and he reads out, all will go well with your new project. You can imagine him looking over to Jehoshaphat and saying, is that enough? Come on, you ready? You happy? You satisfied now? But Jehoshaphat is not satisfied. He wants a second opinion, or maybe a 401st opinion, more accurately. Verse 7, Jehoshaphat answered, he asked, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Because Jehoshaphat has twigged to something quite subtle but very important. If you look closely at verse 6 in your Bible there, the 400 prophets said, The Lord will give it into the king's hand. L-O-R-D with lowercase O-R-D. Which means that the underlying Hebrew word there is the word Adonai. It's the more generic word for sovereign or master, a more generic descriptor for God. Whereas Jehoshaphat has asked, verse 7, is there no longer a prophet of the Lord? Capital L-O-R-D. The Hebrew word Yahweh, the personal name of the God of Israel. The 400 prophets have been vague. They're not even clear about which God they're representing. Jehoshaphat says, that's not good enough. I want to know what my God says, the one true living God. You can imagine Ahad getting a little grumpy at this point. As we've seen, he's not exactly on the best terms with the Lord, the God of Israel, nor with his prophets. But he reluctantly agrees. Verse 8, the king of Israel answered, There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. He never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micah, son of Imla. And here we're introduced to the other main character in this drama, the prophet Micah. What we also get there is this really significant insight into Ahab's character. And this is where we start to see how this passage comes alive and helps us understand not just history, but even ourselves. Because Ahab would much rather hear good news than true news. He loves his 400 regular prophets because they are full of nothing but admiration and positivity. Ahab wants to go attack the city, so he wants yes men who are going to back up what he's already decided. These prophets, are the ones saying, yes, Mr. President, sir, great plan, Mr. Ahab, sir. The the forecast is blue skies, sunshine all the way, go for it. Meanwhile, Micaiah, he has the track record as the, the doomsday prophet constantly talking about impending disaster. He's the guy standing by the side of the road in the big sandwich board which says, repent, the end of the world is nigh. He's not the kind of guy you want to hear from if you want to feel good about yourself. Ahab would rather have the wool pulled over his eyes, it seems. If Ahab was in the Matrix, 100%, he would have taken the blue pill. Wake up in his bed, believe whatever he wants, ignorance is bliss. That's Ahab's approach to prophecy. Prophecy. Now, Jehoshaphat, they're listening to this, and he can't believe his ears. Sight, he says, the king should not say such a thing. How can you say you don't want to hear the real word from God? Even if it might be a little uncomfortable. Ahab's like the child who covers their ears and says, I can't hear you, la, 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 la. Wouldn't you rather have the true diagnosis? No matter how bad the news might be. Reluctantly, Ahab agrees to bring in Mr. Doomsday himself. So enter Micaiah. Now this is the only time the prophet Micaiah appears in the Bible. We don't get a lot of background on him. Though we do get a flavor for the kind of gutsy, solo, lone ranger sort of operator he is. When he's, he's in the green room before he goes on stage before the king's. And Micaiah's handler is there urging him to toe the line. Verse 13, look, the other prophets, without exception, are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs. Speak favorably. Come on, Micaiah, just be another yes-man. It's not the time to rock the boat. You don't know how angry the king already is. Micaiah will have none of it. Verse 14, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. You can feel the, the action hero bravado just dripping off those words. Micaiah will not budge an inch. He's not going to make up some fluff to sue they have, like his 400 sycophants. He's going to tell it to the king straight. And this really is the the high point of the drama. The whole narrative has has primed us for the next moment. We're anticipating this showdown. Sparks are going to fly. The very next words out of Micaiah's mouth will be the, the announcement of God himself about Ahab's doom. And so what actually happens is utterly perplexing. Verse 15. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead or not? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. What? That's not at all what we were geared up to expect. The Lord promising victory once again, that's exactly what the 400 prophets had said, and it's exactly what Micaiah said he wouldn't say. And more than that, Micaiah clearly told us that he's only going to say what the Lord himself has told him. Does that mean this announcement of victory for Ahab has actually come from the Lord as well? What is going on? As if that weren't enough to make it even more perplexing, King Ahab next shows us immediately that he knows something fishy is going on. He says to Micaiah, verse 16, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Ahab knows straight away that what Micaiah has just told him isn't true. He's saying, come on, that's enough nonsense, just give it to me straight. Which again gives us another very telling insight into Ahab's character. He knows straight away that the promise of victory is not true. Which means at some level he knows that his four hundred other yes men have told him something not true as well. Hold that thought. That's very important. We'll come back to that. We're back in this showdown, Micaiah happily obliges, okay, let me give it to you straight, and he then gives us the prophecy we were expecting. Verse 17. Micaiah answered I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd and the Lord said these people have no master let each one go home in peace the army scattered sheep with no shepherd an army without a king in other words Ahab's doom at this point Ahab leans over and he nudges Jehoshaphat in the ribs and says I told you so verse 18 didn't I tell you you never prophesied anything good about me only bad Take stock of what we've seen so far. What are we meant to make of Micaiah's words here? He first promises victory from God, immediately does a backflip and promises defeat. Is this God being fickle in the same breath saying yes, yes, and no, no, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians rather? Before we can wrestle with those questions, we need to keep reading. Because actually the very next scene is the crucial piece of information which changes everything. Which flips this whole story on its head and shows us that nothing we've seen is as it seems. We need to go back and see it all afresh. Because Micaiah tells Ahab that he has seen a vision. A vision of the Lord sitting on his throne with his heavenly council around him. This is like the prime minister meeting with his cabinet. It's the Lord plus his his angels, spiritual beings, whatever we might want to call them. And the Lord says, verse 20... Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? What an incredible question. God says, which of you spirits is going to go out and lure Ahab into fighting this battle and the aim is he's going to die. And the spirits bounce some ideas around. You can almost imagine them getting the whiteboard out until one of them comes forward and says, I'll do it. How? Verse 22, by what means? The Lord asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, the spirit said. That's the plan. He's going to go and use Ahab's 400 prophets and speak through them, except he's going to speak lies. And then the Lord says, great plan. He gives his blessing to it. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. And Micaiah finishes with the summary that explains everything that's happened in the chapter so far. Verse 23 So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours, Ahab. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Micaiah is saying, that's what we've seen. That is the chapter so far. Those 400 prophets who promised victory in the battle, they were speaking lies. Lies not dreamed up by them, but lies given them by the lying spirit God sent. And that promise of victory certainly sounded good because it was meant to entice you, Ahab. It was meant to be this tempting offer to lure you into the battle because the goal here is that you die. And yet God says that prophecy was false because the Lord is not going to give the city into your hand, Ahab. The reality is disaster has been decreed. Doom is coming. Now, as you read those words, I wonder what sort of thoughts and feelings go through your heart. First glance, it certainly sounds pretty unsettling, doesn't it? That God would have that kind of way with his own king? It's a narrative that at the very least is bizarre. What business does the Lord, the God of steadfast love and faithfulness, have? What business does he have employing deceptive means to bring the downfall of his own king? Doesn't the Bible tell us God doesn't lie? Jesus is the truth. It certainly does. But the question then is, if God is not lying here, then what on earth is going on? The crucial thing we need to notice to unlock this puzzle is to see that God here is not at all trying to be secretive. He's not trying to hide what he is doing from Ahab, because Micaiah is here reporting this division directly to the king. If the Lord were really trying to pull a sneaky deception over Ahab, then this seems like a pretty bad way to go about it. If you want to take someone in with a lie, why would you then immediately tell them that you were lying? The first rule of deception is you do not talk about deception. So there's clearly something more complex going on here. What we're seeing is that Ahab is given these two different and contrasting messages which are both sent, in some sense, from God. The Lord sends both this lying spirit to deliver the false message of success and he sends Micaiah to bring the true message, the warning of disaster, but also Micaiah is making clear what is going on. He's pulling back the curtain and showing that God has set up this whole situation. When we zoom out and look at the chapter as a whole, God's communication to Ahab it's not really a deception at all. It's more like a choice. It's like a test. Ahab, here are these two messages. One, the, the great sounding word of victory, which you really wanted to hear, but it's a pipe dream. It's unreliable. It's the road to destruction. And the other is a bit of pill to swallow, but it's the truth. So which are you going to choose? Which message will you trust? And as the passage goes on, you get to see what Ahab chooses. As his story comes to an end, verse 29, first he chooses to reject Micaiah's word. He goes up to the battle anyway, despite everything he's heard. Verse 30, interestingly, Ahab goes to the battle in disguise. Which is not exactly what you would choose to wear if you were confident that God had promised you a victory. That's what you thought. You wouldn't wear armour at all, right? I'm bulletproof. I've got the divine sanction. The fact that Ahab goes in disguise, again, suggests that deep down he knows what's going on. He knows the Lord is not on his side. In verse, 30, 30, 30, verse 34, just to make it really clear, this is an act of God. A random archer fires a stray shot that just happens to find the chink in Ahab's armour. Humanly speaking, what are the odds? No, this arrow is the lightning bolt in the Lord's hand. And so our story ends with the king dead. The army scatters. The battle is lost, and Ahab has been enticed to his doom, just as the Lord's word had said. If this passage leaves you with questions, believe me, it's left me with more, and we can't unpack them all tonight. A couple of reflections that I want us to work through to help bring this home. And the first is really the obvious question, what does all this say about the truthfulness of God? How can we trust the God who does something like this? Does he deceive Ahab in the end? I hope it's clear by now that that is not what's going on in this story. Because we've seen that Ahab was not deceived. He knew this message wasn't true. He said, come on, Micaiah, I want the truth. Because he knew that it was false. He went to battle in disguise because he knew that the warning of doom was the real prophecy here. So the question then is, why on earth does he go up to the battle... If he knows that he's headed for disaster, it seems to me the only real option is that Ahab goes to the battle even in spite of the truth he has heard. He rolls boldly into the night towards his doom, eyes wide open, because the only alternative is to humble himself before the word of God and repent Ahab is so hardened in his rebellion that he would rather keep chasing the lie all the way to his death than humbly turn back to God and accept the truth. That's hardly a surprise if you've, if you've read all of his story. Ahab's whole life has been a lie. He has already completely embraced falsehood in every way. God's given him chance after chance to turn away from his false gods who are not gods at all and turn back to the true God. But again and again, Ahab's not interested. So in the end God's judgment finally falls but instead of God just zapping Ahab with a lightning bolt instantly the particular form that God's judgment takes is to design this situation to make it really clear that Ahab in the end chooses the lie for himself. So it's not so much that God lies to Ahab it's more that God sets Ahab's own lie before him and makes it really clear that this is a lie and then Ahab decides to choose it anyway. There can be no doubt to anyone that Ahab has chosen what was false and he chose it for himself. This has all sorts of things to say to us as human beings in God's world who by nature embrace the lie. In all sorts of ways, that is what we people do. We are utterly self deceived and that is our nature in all sorts of ways humans on our own without God we believe all sorts of things we embrace all sorts of things that are just not true we live lies God doesn't love me God's a stickler for the rules he doesn't care about my happiness or joy life is best when I make it all about me my happiness is what matters most I'm worthless no one could ever find any value in me I'm perfect, just the way I am. In all sorts of ways, every single person out there, and in so many ways, every single person, every one of us, in all sorts of ways, we embrace the lie. And in the New Testament, we find out that this experience that Ahab had is not just a one-off. It's an illustration of something that happens more broadly in the world for those who reject God and embrace the lie. So turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 9. Sorry, that's not right. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. Which once I get there, I can tell you what the page number is. We're looking at page 1189. 1189. As Paul teaches Christians about The coming of the man of lawlessness, which is a whole sermon for another time. We read these words 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Again, these are sobering words, but they are what happened to Ahab, a man who is so stubborn and so consumed by wickedness, who has embraced the lie so utterly. What is God's response to that kind of wickedness? He sends them a powerful delusion so they will believe the lie all the more. Just as Ahab was confirmed in his lie, the word of God came driving him just ever deeper into his own self-deception. So Paul tells us that for countless people around our world, that is life. Those who have believed the lie will be driven ever further into their own self-deception until destruction comes. When you hear that that's what human beings are like and that's how our world is the question that arises is, what hope is there? And the only hope that there is is that truth himself stepped into this world and came as a light to shine into our darkness. There will be some in our world who never find the light who never have the veil lifted some who love the darkness so much and have served the lie, so the destruction will be their end. And that's terrifying, and how full of sorrow it is. But the hope that we have is that that is not true for all people in God's world. Thanks be to God that He lifts the veil for some. If you know Christ, know that it is not at all because of anything that you have decided. It's not because of anything that you learned. It's not because you were smart enough to figure out the truth. It's not because you were rational enough to figure out from first principles who God is and that he's there. On our own, we would all serve the lie. But praise be to God, that Christ has come to shine light onto our dark hearts so that we might see the truth, turn from the lie, embrace him, he who is the truth. If nothing else, how great a summons is a passage like 1 Kings 22 to fall to our knees in prayer. As we head out into the world and as we rub shoulders with those who we know who don't yet believe the truth, those who still serve the lie, let us never think that, once again, it's enough for us to reason them out of their unbelief, as if we can persuade them on our own that Jesus is the truth. The only hope we have is that he might shine on their hearts and bring them from the darkness into the light. We have a God who is surely more surprising, in some ways more shocking than we would ever dream up for ourselves. That's the God who reveals himself to us in 1 Kings 22. It's a sobering word. It reminds us of our condition of just how deep in darkness each of us are on our own it drives us forward to long for the light to keep breaking into the lives of those around us as it has broken into ours. Let's pray that that is exactly what God would do. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would never let us domesticate you and try and put you in a box of our own making. We thank you that so often your word rattles our cage because it shows us that you are so much bigger than we would ever imagine we pray that you would help us to tremble before you as the god who will judge the wicked we pray that you would help us to know how deep in darkness we were before you shined your light on our hearts and how we long for you to shine that light on the people we work with live near people in our families we love who don't yet know you please lift the veil that they too might know that jesus is the truth we pray it in his name amen we are going to sing together again as we respond to a word that for some may been challenging hard to hear